0: Traumatic brain injuries can have lifelong impacts on cognitive and psychological function. Today's guest studies these injuries among survivors of domestic violence and says they have serious mental health impacts. She's Dr. Eve Valera, this week on Story of the Public Square. And welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University.
1: And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal.
0: This week, we're joined by Dr. Eve Valera, an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a research scientist whose work over the last two and a half decades has focused on the impact of brain injury resulting from domestic violence. Eve, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, you know, this is a uh, this is a serious topic, and 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 it blends both sort of human behavior uh, and 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 brain science. Um, how did you get into this work in the first place?
2: I got into this work because, like you said, I had a little bit of a double interest. So my training, but basic, basically, when I was interested in going into graduate school, I was very interested in in neuropsychology so understanding how the brain does things to make the body do things right so brain behavior relationships and when i went to graduate school i also was interested in the idea of domestic and family violence and so i was teaching a child abuse prevention program while at the same time volunteering at a local um, woman's shelter and so as I was volunteering at that shelter, I would hear stories of the women who might have been like hit repeatedly in the head with fists or hitting the head with a bat or something really pretty traumatic that could cause damage to the brain. As I'm learning about this in my studies, because I'm learning neuropsychology and how the brain can have problems if you get hit and the effects of brain injuries. And I'm like, wow you know, these be, women certainly seem to be sustaining brain injuries. And a lot of the things that they have problems with seem consistent with what people might see following a brain injury. So I said, what, what do we know about this? And when I looked at the literature, I didn't find a single article. Um, there was nothing on the intersection of partner violence and brain injury. And so I basically said, I got to find out what's going on here and uh, decided to do that from a dissertation.
0: I think most people are familiar with uh, with traumatic brain injury, uh, either through uh, if they haven't been affected or someone that they that they love has been affected. They're at least familiar with the studies around NFL players, uh, and maybe they've heard about the Americas of veterans who suffered from traumatic brain injury in the wars of the last two decades. Um, are there insights from those experiences that are specifically applicable to the work you do?
2: So, I mean, the, the insights from there, I mean, yeah, the insights might be that repetitive brain injury is certainly bad, right? I mean, the, the data that we have collected, you know, you know, as a field in terms of brain injury is largely focused on male data, and a lot of it is based on athletes or, or military folks, as you said, and a lot of the focus has been on repetitive brain injuries. And it's become pretty clear that, you know, if you have one brain injury, one, if we call, you know, a moderate to severe brain injury, that's a whole different story. But if we're talking about what people think about in the NFL or athletes, these concussions or these mild traumatic brain injuries, if you have one, you know, most people will recover, you know, eventually, they'll eventually go on and, you know, there may not be, you know, there's, some data that suggests even one brain injury may have some long-term effect down the road. But but overall, you're gonna look like you did before you ever had the brain injury. But once we have repetitive brain injuries, then we start getting more concerned about long-term effects. And that's a lot of that has been studied in athletes, et cetera. And for the women who I'm studying now, we know that they're sustaining bra- repetitive brain injuries as well. So there's no reason to think that they are not experiencing potentially negative long-term sequelae as well and in fact based on what you know what we know about brain injuries or what i may have you know looked at in my data it seems that you know if anything women who are experiencing brain injuries from partner violence are probably going to fare worse than athletes maybe even military folks for, for a couple of different reasons so
0: talk i would love to know if, what what do you think those reasons are
2: So, so, so for one, well, there's a couple, so, so if you're an athlete, you, for the most part now, I mean, not historically, but now you will automatically get access to care. You'll get treatment, you'll get sidelined. You cannot go back into the game until you have successfully gone through your return to play protocol, right? So you're ensured that your brain has time to heal, not only before you're doing strenuous you know, activity or things that may aggravate your brain, you know, the symptoms of your brain injury, but you're not going to sustain a second injury before that one's healed for the most part. Whereas women, they often don't report their brain injuries at all. they either, they either can't get access to care or they're afraid to, or they don't recognize that it's something that's important to do. So that's one thing. The other thing is that if we look at athletes, athletes tend to be healthier people because by definition, they're playing a game. They have to be able to do certain things, you know, to be in the game. And so if you have a healthier body, that's gonna be more likely to recover well than a body that's not as healthy. And it's not like a one-to-one relationship or anything like that, but certain things, you know, like when, in terms of recovery from a brain injury, you know, if you have other negative things that are going on, that may slow down your recovery. Like if you have another bodily injury for example if you have like a broken arm as well your body has so many resources right and so if you're only de- if your body's only trying to repair the brain and not repair something else you're better and if you have a stronger body you might be better off as well so so and then there are some data suggest that there are differences in men versus women in terms of recovery of function after brain injury so you know, there's you know, there's a number of different things, but I would say that overall women who are experiencing partner violence are on the negative end of that spectrum, unfortunately, in terms of uh, recovering well and quickly. So
1: can you talk to us about some of the effects of brain injury, particularly among women and the, and the people you study? And I, I guess you could break those down into to two categories. One would be the immediate effect, what happens after, after a woman is punched or, or, or kicked or hit in the head, uh, or, And then the longer term that you mentioned before, a long conversation, but talk about that.
2: Sure. So we we don't, I mean, we don't have a lot of data on exactly the immediate effects in terms of who I have studied so far in terms of like right afterwards. Like I may know that, you know, I may know that they sustained a concussion because either they lost consciousness or they couldn't remember part of what happened or they're really dazed and disoriented and then they may have had symptoms for a while after that, may have had headaches. Um, but we haven't been able to study that really well because we don't usually see these women right after their brain injuries. The data that I have collected has been collected based on women who have come in, and their most recent brain injury may be five years or something. Um, so, so, or, or it's, it's typically a range. So some people are a little more recent, but some people are down the road, but a lot of them, the majority of the women who I've interviewed has, have sustained repeated brain injuries. And the data that I've collected show that the more brain injuries a woman sustains, the more difficulty she has learning a list of words and remembering that list of words later on. And then also doing a task, um, we we call it a cognitive flexibility task. We have to sort of change what you're doing cognitively quickly back and forth from one to the other. And so we show a relationship there. And then we also show a relationship where the more brain injuries a woman has, the the more the higher score she may have on unfortunately psychological distress scales like depression, anxiety, PTSD symptomatology, and worry. So really when we look at this more as a whole and not just the one specific brain injury, but her history of brain injuries, we see elevated levels of psychological distress and a relationship between um, those brain injuries and memory learning and cognitive flexibility.
1: Eve, can you talk about strangulation? That is another type of injury, a related injury that certainly has an effect on the brain that, that you have studied and I, I think perhaps is lesser known than some of the more obvious types of of violence.
2: Absolutely, and that's a really good, a really good question. Strangulation is important to understand in a lot of ways. One, uh, one reason it's important to understand is because it's a strong lethality indicator. So women who are strangled are much more likely to be murdered by their partners. And so it's a good thing to recognize um, certainly if you're worried about the safety of the woman and that's been something that's been talked about and discussed for a long time now what's been less discussed about strangulation is the possibility that it may be causing um, basically a brain injury via an alteration in consciousness so when you're strangled you know you're it's an external attack on the neck and it's depriving the brain of oxygen and potential nutrients that the, the blood may bring to the brain and that type of lack of blood or oxygen to the brain basically asphyxiates the brain at least briefly right while the strangulation is going on and it's hard to study because you know like in science we can sometimes do experiments and understand exactly what happened But we can't, you know, ethically, and who would want to do this, strangle people and find out exactly what happens when you keep strangling them. Um, But in my my data, I have looked at the potential effects of strangulation-related, what we call alterations in consciousness. And what that means is if they reported some type of either loss of consciousness or loss of memory for the event or confusion around the incident right after they were strangled, I do show that that is related to negative cognitive and psychological outcomes as well, and when I and, and what we don't know as much is how the interaction between strangulations and other types of brain injuries may be affecting the brain, because if you think you know you have one type of insult to the brain, okay, you might get some type of problems. Now you have another type of insult to the brain that may have sort of an overlap. But then when you have both of those, which a lot of these women do have, then it's going to be potentially even worse. So we're we're at our infancy in trying to understand that.
0: Eve, I'm curious as I'm listening to this conversation, does the source of the injury matter? I I guess is the fact that um, the the people that you're studying are victims of domestic violence. or, or intimate partner violence, uh, does that produce a different set of outcomes and consequences than someone who's you know, in a Humvee that got blown up or uh, playing uh, tackle and taking too many blows to the head? Is, is there something materially different uh, in the outcomes of people who are uh, victims of violence?
2: So in terms of what's going on at the time and would we, I mean, we know that there are some similarities right now because when I study this, I can see some type, some of the same types of things that we see in, in other brain injured victims, right? But if you think about the differences between women and these folks that you just mentioned, so if you're in football, you may have a helmet, so there's some protective, some protection to the head. If you're playing football, you have a stronger um, neck muscles, so that may help prevent you from getting a concussion as well. So there's certain differences in the structure or the the, let's just say uniform um, uh, between women and and some of the most commonly studied folks. And the other thing is the, the psychological context within which the brain injury occurs. And so for so for folks in the military, they may be traumatized as well. I you mean, know, I you you know I don't know exactly how everything works, but it could be pretty traumatic, obviously, to be blown up in a Humvee or be driving through and being afraid you're going to get blown up. Right. But when you're on that, we're on their sports field, you're not going to have that type of fear, right? I mean, you're playing your game, you're probably happy, etc. Um, but women who are experiencing partner violence are often walking on eggshells some of them have described it as like being in a war zone being in the ring with a boxer and so it's very terrifying and many of these women have high levels of post-traumatic stress so in that in that way the context of the brain injury is actually quite different because extreme stress is going to affect how your brain is working as well so there's these are just a number of the different number of different factors that may change the way your brain responds to that injury and consequently its ability to recover effectively from that brain injury or quickly from that brain injury. And that's a really good point And one, which we're, you know, hopefully we're going to be finding out more and more as we study these women, because we just haven't, you know, so like the field isn't in such an infancy right now that um, we know sort of the bare bones, but certainly we know there's negative outcomes and the psychological stress is certainly not going to help that.
0: We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM, satellite radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 134. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so at JMLutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Eve Valera, a professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a research scientist at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Over the last 25 years, Dr. Valera's research has focused on brain injury resulting from domestic violence and the neural cognitive and psychological consequences of those injuries. If you'd like to follow her on Twitter, Dr. Valera is at Eve Valera two. That's E-V-E-V-A-L-E-R-A, the number two.
1: So Eve, how do you find the people you study? I mean, you've mentioned earlier, and of course this is well known and intuitive that many victims of partner violence don't tell anyone. It's their secret. Uh, how do you find how do you find the people that, that you do study?
2: Yeah, so that's another good question. And it hasn't always been easy. So the first study that I did, I I would say two two thirds of them were actually from the shelter that I was volunteering, within which I was volunteering. And so I, you know, hit it's not as if you know somebody can just walk into a shelter and say, oh, we would like to study you. I mean, that's, that's just not going to happen. Um, it's not acceptable for a number of different reasons. But since I was already associated with the shelter and volunteering there, they knew who I was. They trusted me. So I was able to have women who um, were coming into that shelter. I could you know tell them about the study, et cetera. And so sometimes it's from a shelter. Um, and then other people, there was word of mouth, people getting orders of protection, et cetera. In other studies, I've I've waited, you know, a very, very long time before one person came in. And then again, it was because a shelter um, said, oh, here's the study. And one person came in and they're like, oh yeah, like she's cool, you know, you can go. So, so, and then more recently we've sort of advertised and we've gotten other women um, who are in the community um, and they may not have told other people necessarily, but they are signing up for the study um, because we're specifically saying what we're doing. And I think it's becoming, um, I think it's a little bit different now. I mean, we're still way behind where we need to be in terms of accepting partner violence. It's still very stigmatizing, et cetera. But it, we, we operate under the, the context of confidentiality, et cetera. So they don't have to worry about this, you know, getting out to anybody else. Do
1: you do any post-mortem work you know, it's well known that, you know, in the NFL, uh, a number of people have donated their brains to research. And I think there's a center at Boston University, actually, mm-hmm. that does some of this work, if I have that correct. And some brains have been donated, and when, when people who are going to donate die, those brains will go there. Have you, have you done any work along those lines to, to actually look at the neuroanatomy of the brains of, of the people you're studying?
2: Yeah, so I, I have not done that. So I'm, I, by, by training, I wouldn't be able to do that, but I have very, very much wanted to collaborate with somebody who can do that, and I might. I mean, there's a couple of things in the works. I think it's really important to do. Right now, as you said, um, the group at BU has looked at a lot of football players. There's a couple of other athletes, brains who have sustained repeated head impacts. And they found high levels of tau and Aaron Hernandez who was here I guess with the pats for a little bit he committed suicide in jail and I looked at his brain and found tau and so the next question is well do we think we might find that in women and we don't have a good answer right now I will tell you that there are two documented cases though one from 1990 and one more recently in the past couple of years where it, there were case reports in which there were women who had been beated, beaten by their partners and when they did autopsy, they did find basically what you would, you know, the, the signature CTE um, tau in the brain. Um, and so it would have been diagnosed as, as a CTE case. Um, but other than those two cases, we don't have that. But I think it's really important, and I, I actually have been trying to get the right connections find the right people to do this. It's, it, it seems so simple, like we should be able to do this, but despite lack of interest, it's not necessarily simple because it involves you know, victims and donating brains and then the neuropathologist, et cetera. Um, but I think it's a great question and I would love to see um, what we might find if we were to start looking at women who had histories of, of, of head injuries from partner violence. Um, I think it's a really important thing that we should do.
0: Even getting ready for this interview, I, I read a, a piece in the New York Times magazine that cited a CDC estimate that one in five American women uh, experience, quote, severe intimate partner violence over the course of their lifetimes. One in five is an astounding number. Uh, do you have any sense of sort of the societal uh, factors that are at play there?
2: Why partner violence is so common? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, there's a lot. I mean, part of it is we're in a very, I mean, I, I think mo- overall the world largely is part patriarchal and there's a lot of misogyny and, you know, women are often second class citizens or not citizens at all. Um, so, I mean, we can talk about the United States versus other parts of the world, but women are, are generally not necessarily safe overall. Um, It's very common for women to be abused. I mean, it happens to men as well, um, but they're less like men are less likely to be injured from the violence, partly probably because of the physical difference in in structure and strength. Um, But partner violence, another reason I think partner violence is so pervasive is because it's, it happens behind closed doors a lot, and it's very stigmatizing. And so people don't want to admit to it, and other reasons is because people may not feel they're going to be believed. Um, there's, you know, a lot of reasons why women may be stuck in a relationship with her partner and have to, you know, basically feel like she has to stay there. Economic abuse, um, threats, etc. And w- women are murdered um, by their partners all the time, unfortunately, and they're most likely to be murdered either when they're leaving the relationship or after they've left the relationship. So, so there's reasons why women may end up being trapped in relationships for extended periods. And I don't know if I I could probably talk about that for a very long time. So I'm trying to dial it back. Um, And then just because people don't want to talk about partner violence. I mean, it's not like it's a fun thing to talk about. Um, And if So if I were to mention it to somebody, I might be uncomfortable even mentioning it to somebody for fear. I would make them uncomfortable. And I think people do get uncomfortable talking about it. So it's kind of hidden. And so it's sort of like a crime that can just keep occurring with few ramifications um, because people don't want to admit it. And then I think some people may not even recognize that it's really violence. They may think, well, he loves me. It's just this thing that he does or whatever it might be um but yeah i I wish we knew but i mean my only solution um or what i would hope um will eventually change is that we basically have a core curriculum that includes healthy relationships as as one of the staples you know that that's not just like one course every year or something um for some reason we as human beings are are not understanding what healthy relationships mean overall And I think the idea is that, oh, parents should be teaching that themselves. We don't need to teach that in the schools, but clearly when kids are witnessing their parents beat up on each other or the father beat up on the, 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 the mother, they're not getting the, you know, not understanding how relationships should be. And, And as a woman, if you see your mother always being treated, you know, poorly, you may think that that's just the way you're supposed to be. It's normalized. And so I think until we change the socialization of, of little boys and girls at a young age, I think this is just going to continue and continue. Um, and then we also need to make this a bigger conversation. Open up the conversation. Don't be afraid to talk about partner violence. And the one of the one of the. Um, if you will, silver linings of COVID is that you can say, you know, I know partner violence has gone up during COVID. I've, I've, I've been learning this and I just wanted to check in with you. Are you safe at home? Because some people might feel like, oh, I don't want to ask my friend that because that would be insulting to say that their husband or whatever may be beating up on them or whatever that may think they're going to offend them. But this is one way you could potentially do it. You could say, well, I just know what's happening. I'm asking everybody. I just want to make sure that you're safe. And then who knows, maybe you'll find somebody who wasn't safe and you'll be able to help them out. But I think that's what I think. Those are the things we need to change. What
1: advice would you have for someone watching or listening to the show, who is in a situation where this violence is continuing? What would you say to that person?
0: Got about a minute and a half, Eve.
2: Um, I would say that it doesn't. So this isn't. It isn't just normal behavior. It's it, it's not something that has to keep occurring. I would say there are places that. Are that can offer help and it may not be easy there may be a a lot of different factors that are basically making it very difficult to get out of that situation, but with planning. And a better infrastructure, I think that it is possible to get out and to get out safely, Um, you, you know if 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 that's what they desire if for other reasons, they feel like they need to stay there are probably other things that you can say, well, at least, at the very least, create a safety plan in case things get really bad and you need to get out. Or in my case, when I think about um, brain injuries, you know, specifically, I'd want to say, try to protect your brain. If nothing else, like, you know, cover your brain or, you know, if there's going to be abuse, I mean, obviously, you can't, like, decide what's going to be, what's going to be hit, but maybe try to protect your brain and, and just know that, you know, as part of, you know, either be there's a lot of reasons that make it very hard to get out of these situations, but knowing that, you know, your brain is very, very special and we don't want to keep getting hits to it. And that may have long term effects down the road and it may be contributing to um, your ability, the, the woman's ability to get out without her even recognizing it. Maybe she thinks, oh, of course I can't, I I can't even balance a checkbook. How am I supposed to survive on my own? Well, maybe part of the problem is, is that you're dealing with post-concussive symptoms that do make it harder for you to do certain things. But once you get out of that relationship, once you're not sustaining these blows to the head and the anxiety, et cetera, associated with it, you'll be better able to deal with those things. Maybe your headaches will subside, et cetera. And so I would say that we wanna, you know, We'll offer help and then there are places that you can get assistance.
0: Eve, we can't thank you enough for sharing uh, some of your work with us and for the work that you do. She's Dr. Eve Valera. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutus asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.